welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Today I'm speaking with David Eimer. David is the author of the critically acclaimed The Emperor Far Away, Travels at the Edge of China, and of A Savage Dreamland, a book about his journeys through Burma. He was a Beijing-based correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph from 2005 to 2012, and he's been living in and writing about Asia and Southeast Asia for nearly two decades now. Both books have already made my best reads of the year shortlist. We spoke about David's travels through China's tumultuous border regions, and the ways that different ethnic minorities have tried to keep their culture alive beneath the Han yoke. I hope you enjoy our conversation. David Eimer, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thank you. So I wanted to talk about your China book, The Emperor Far Away. But uh, before we jump in, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed it. Like we talked about this earlier, I crossed paths with your route uh, in several places, traveling through Tibet and, and Xinjiang, obviously at different times. But the book book brought back so many memories of, of what was for me a really enjoyable trip. And you know, it confirmed some of the observations I had made about these places, but it also filled in an enormous amount of, uh, of blanks and questions that I had had. Uh, lingering ever since that trip. So um, you said you first traveled to China in 1988. Uh, why? What interested you in going there? Well, actually, to be honest, it was um, it was rather random. A couple of friends of mine were going. Uh, yeah, we were all 21 that year, and um, I was given a, a modest amount of cash by my grandmother to go traveling. And I actually couldn't really decide on where to go. And then... Um, a couple of people said, oh, you know, we're going to China. I sort of thought, well, I'll tag along. You know, it, it hadn't really occurred to me. I mean, um, I knew very little about China, really, uh, until I went. You know, I'd read the sort of Tintin book, The Blue Lotus, um, which is actually good about Shanghai in the 1930s. But, um, you know, I, I, knew, I knew basic stuff. It had a big wall, you know, Mao Zedong, you know, that sort of stuff. And then, so when, when when I went, I then began reading some books, and I was very very glad I did go because it sort of really, um, you know, it sort of changed my life in a way. I mean, you know, I wrote a book about it, you know, years down the line, but also, you know, I lived there and, and worked there, and um, you know, it's probably still my favorite country for traveling, although not at this exact moment. So, is that what prompted you to move there then? At- this this initial trip sparked your interest that that came later because i was then working you know i was at university when i went to china in 88 and then you know i became a journalist and i you know i I was based in la for five years when i was back in london you know i I wanted to change and um i'd been back to china um a couple of years before and you know from what i was reading and hearing it seemed like beijing you know especially was you know this sort of really sort of interesting sort of frontier city where um you know everything was happening there was an art scene there was music obviously the politics um the olympics were coming um it just seemed to me to be you know a good place to be and um and so that's why i moved there the rate of change was really astonishing and i i was i first went there in um 2001 i guess like on vacation from japan i was i was flying to pyongyang and i had to go through Beijing. So I thought, you know, know nothing about the place. I'll spend a week there. And it, it was so interesting that I ended up coming back the following year for a couple of months to travel around. Like it was really nothing like what I expected. But between that August um, 2001 and coming back in, you know, less than a year later in 2002, I couldn't recognize the street I had stayed on in Beijing. It was changing so quickly. Yeah. And that's pretty typical. I mean, um, I mean, I, I was back there. I was there in 2004 before I moved. Um, in 2005 and by the time i'd moved the place you know i'd stayed at had disappeared and um there was an awful lot of you know redevelopment going on and obviously it's ongoing you know i haven't been there since 2016 to the mainland of china i've been to hong kong a couple of times um but yeah i think that's something that happens you know across asia actually you know in in you know it happens in in you know, where i am at the moment in thailand and it was happening in Burma um, before the coup. If you're used to sort of growing up in a sort of rather 
staid sort of you know society like you know the UK where old things are valued, whether it's buildings or whatever. You know, it's it's a real eye opener to see you know the opposite side of that. So, why did you become interested in China's border regions? How are they different from the core of the country? Well, they're very different because um, in China you have a core, the, the heartland of the country, and you have the east, the eastern coast, the north. To a large extent, are Han Chinese, so the people there are the same ethnic group. The ethnic minorities in China tend to congregate. As far away from there as possible, which is a reflection of you know how China came together as a country geographically. But um, you know, so they're out in um, out in the border regions, uh, obviously in the west with Tibet and Xinjiang, and in the southwest of Yunnan, uh, and in the northeast, up against sort of Russia, North Korea, and Mongolia. I just found those regions. I you know, I, I, I in '88 that first visit, <clears throat> I visited Xinjiang. And um, I'd sort of been blown away by it, how different it was from um, the China I'd been traveling through just you know, a week or two before. And then when I was living there, I was able to, you know, travel to a lot of the border regions just for you know, work and also sometimes just for pleasure. And I began to get, become really interested in them. And I began to think about the contrast between Han China and um, the ethnic minorities China. And it seemed like, a, you know, it just seemed like a fascinating subject to sort of research and then, you know, write about. And, and that's how the book came about. I don't think a lot of people are, are familiar with the, the formation of China and just how recently some of these territories were added. Like you wrote in the book that, that almost two thirds of the country was absorbed into China quite, quite recently. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know Beijing is an imperial power and their, their colonies. It wasn't like the British Empire, where you know we, we traveled thousands of you know thousands of miles away from Europe to colonize people. The Chinese just sort of moved. Well, we did travel thousands of miles, um, just in such a big country. But they basically just sort of moved west from their heartlands and, and they colonized them. You know, these places like obviously Tibet, Xinjiang, which is you know really Central Asia, um, and then the Southwest, which is of China, Yunnan province, which just has m- much more in common, really, with Southeast Asia than it does with Han China. And so, you know, you, know, you, you need to look at China as such a big place with so many people as kind of an empire, <clears throat> just an empire contained within one country. And you said until the Chinese Communist Party took over that Chinese leaders acknowledged this imperial role much more openly than they do now. Yeah, the emperors did. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously the last dynasty, um, they were themselves a minority originally, <clears throat> the Manchu, um, who had come from the northeast. Yeah, they, they acknowledged that those people were different from them and um, they needed to be ruled in different ways. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they, you know, treated them as equals, but I don't think they did. But there was certainly, it wasn't like, the rhetoric you get now from the, the CCP, which is, you know, it's one China, you know, indivisible, and we're all the same, which is, you know, which is patently untrue. Because there are around 100 million people in, you know, in China who aren't Han Chinese. But yeah, but that's, that's one of the things that's changed, changed when the communists took over. It's interesting that you'd said that they had, they sort of looked at some so-called barbarian cultures as either cooked and therefore tame or raw and savage. Yeah, uncooked. I think all empires kind of do that. You know, you know, the British did that with their sort of divide and rule tactics in places like India, where and also you know countries like Burma and you know, I guess to some extent in Africa, but you know some some peoples uh, are more you know are regarded as being more amenable and easier to work with or easier to control than other people who you know other peoples who, who might be you know rather hostile to uh, the colonial power in a sort of overt way. So Xinjiang is obviously a very good example of, of a, a region that's not yet cooked, that they're, that they're trying very badly to cook. Um, you said that the region west of Gansu, which is uh, very much present-day Xinjiang, is ethnically, geographically, and culturally connected to Central Asia and shares nothing with China. So could you sketch that out a bit for people who, who haven't been there or who aren't so familiar with it? Well, basically, the, the, the sort of northwest of China is a lot of it is desert. 
it borders uh, Central Asia, you know, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, um, as well as you know, Russia. And up until sort of relatively recently, the border of China was considered to sort of stop, as you say, in Gansu. In the, you know, and that anything after that was considered to be you know, the badlands, people who weren't pacified. What, what, what's happened since 1949 and, and, and the communist takeover is that um, the Chinese, the Han Chinese have started to spread. And, um, and that's partly because you know, there's so many people, they need more land. But also a large, large part of that is because of you know, the natural resources which are in those territories. It's, it's one of the sort of ironies of, of, of the situation with the Sunni ethnic minorities is that they live in areas where, which are very rich in natural resources, certainly in comparison to you know, the areas of Han China, where everything from farmland you know, to people, you know, it's, it's a, you know, farmland is at a real premium, so it's just not enough space. And so you know, people were encouraged to go west in the same way, I guess, that you know, in the 19th century, the, you know, the pioneers went west in the US you know, on the wagon trains to California or whatever. And that, you know, essentially, Xinjiang was colonized. Up until that point, you know, there had been various attempts at Chinese control over the region, and um, there obviously were Chinese people there. But that already changed, and then, you know, when so now that you know we're heading towards a situation where the ethnic minorities, you know, the Uyghurs and Xinjiang, will become a sort of you know almost like a minority in their own land. Yeah, that seems to be a very determined policy to of cultural dilution. Almost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, you dilute it, and then you know it, it, it makes it much harder for people to rise up, makes it much harder for people to unite as you know one group. Um, you're seeing the same thing in, in Tibet, where you know there's been a massive amount of, of Han Chinese immigration in the last sort of 20 years. It's the most obvious way of doing it. I mean, it doesn't work if you sort of you know just establish like they used to, where you establish a few forts, say you know around Xinjiang, and have a sort of token military presence and a token sort of civil government presence. That isn't really going to colonize it. If you actually want to change people and make them like you you've really got to be there in, in, in very big numbers you've got to impose your language you've got to impose your culture and uh inevitably that means that the, the, the culture and the language of the ethnic minority you know you're, you're doing this too will, will diminish that was one of the notes i've or, or one of the hallmarks that i've noticed throughout chinese history i'm reading a, a big thick history of china right now kind of sparked by having read your book and uh, this sort of cultural colonization like all the people as the the various dynasties uh, swelled and ebbed they that cultural um, continuity was was very strong to the point where uh, a conquering peoples like the mongols took on these aspects of the chinese bureaucracy and and uh, literary tradition to at least some extent so uh, how much of this drive to sort of absorb the minorities involves eradicating their culture and replacing it with the dominant han culture well, I mean, it's interesting you say that the, the Manchu, the Qing Dynasty, did the same thing. You know, they 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 invaded and um, <clears throat> took over China, but instead of sort of imposing their culture, they became Chinese. Um, it's very very interesting. I mean, to the point where you know the Manchu now you know, barely exist in a sort of tech, you know in a real sense. I guess like there's 20 people I think who can speak Manchu in China, something like that. It's a sort of unique, uniquely Han Chinese thing, just because. They do have this continuum of history going, which we're very proud of, going back 5,000 years, during which time they basically, for most of that time, they didn't have any foreign influences. So it was just their culture, as opposed, say, to Britain, which has you know, absorbed all sorts of different cultures, or the United States. So there's this very sort of pure Han Chinese culture there, um, which makes them, I think, also you know, a little intractable. They, yeah, they're not willing to compromise their culture. It's you who have to compromise. It's amazing that 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 cultural backbone, how strong it stays. Because again, Japan is is sort of like that. They've, they're very strong and clinging to their culture, but they're very good at absorbing foreign ideas and foreign influences, and then pretending that they were always Japanese all along or creating something new with it. But yeah, well, the Chinese do that as well. I mean, I remember when um yeah when I was there we were writing stories it was kind of a joke story because you know the Chinese were claiming they 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 invented golf 
<laughs> which um, you know it pissed off absolute Scots. But um, Japan was more open, I think, than China, even if they had the similar sort of "you're all barbarians" really attitude. But they were a bit more open to 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 the West in a way that China wasn't. And then the fact that. <clears throat> Because the Chinese were being so sort of stubborn and saying we don't want to trade with you, we don't want anything to do with you, and then you know, and then you, the Britain in, in the nineteenth century decides we're going to force you to trade with us by you know having opium wars. Obviously, that just sort of strengthens sort of China Chinese resolve not to sort of dilute their culture. It's a you know, it's a unique circumstance, and um, it doesn't mean, of course, you know, like China, of course, takes things from the West which they can use. You know, think you know. But culturally, not so much. I mean, you know, even now, you know, the sort of number of Chinese who say, you know, into say, you know, even like you know, Western music, it's it's pretty small. Yeah, it seems big to us. You know, it's like a million Chinese people are listening to you know, rap music or something. But it, you know, in the context of China, it's nothing. So, you know, it's a tiny number of people. Um, so yeah, that sort of purity of culture and, and you know, determination to maintain it means um that when they did did start going through these regions obviously not xinjiang tibet and also the southwest which you know is also really was only fully absorbed into china you know a little over 100 years ago yeah they, they, there's no it's not like we're, we're going to take some of your culture and blend it or something it, it's um it's more like we're going to impose our culture and you're going to kind of have to put up with it when I ask people about this on traveling by train across China, you know, talking to random people, I would ask them what they thought about the West or or Tibet. They felt very strongly that they were bringing technology, they were bringing economic benefits to these people, and that the people out there weren't very grateful in, in a lot of cases for the improvements to the, their living standards. They couldn't understand why why they were so ungrateful. Well, I, I think all empires say that, don't they? You know, I mean, the British, you say, look, you know, we built railways in India and, you know, we gave you cricket. And, you know, this is how you repay us. Um, but so, so I think all empires do that. And obviously it's a way of trying to justify the unjustifiable, which is, you know, you're colonizing someone else's land. That line which you heard on, on the train, that is the official, you know, CCP line. It's, you know, we are bringing the modern world to what, you know, Chinese call, quaintly call, you know, backward region. So in Tibet, you know, we're going to build you loads of airports, even though, you know, there's not really much point in having an airport in um, parts of Tibet. And uh, we're going to build roads, we're going to build, build railway lines. There are, you know, obviously some benefits to that for, for you know, a lot, of the, a lot of those regions were very, very undeveloped. I think, you know, if you were a Tibetan or a Uyghur, you might say that, the railways and the investment only really benefits Han Chinese people who are living in Xinjiang and Tibet. I think it's quite hard, you know, to get a job if you're a Tibetan or a, or a Uyghur, because um, most of the companies are, you know, are owned and run by Han Chinese people, and they don't really want to employ them, except in sort of kind of low-level jobs. So no, I don't. I don't buy the argument that you know. Yeah, it obviously has an effect on lifting incomes, but I mean, um, when you have you know the scale of Han immigration you, you you've had to to those regions, it basically means that you know it, it really just shuts the locals out because you know below you know, the Chinese the Han Chinese will say, oh, we would employ you, but you know you, your Mandarin isn't really good enough because you know you speak Uyghur or Tibetan as your first language, you know you can't write you know, your characters well enough, so we can't give you a job and. So we'll give it to a Han Chinese person. And, and yeah, they also, those road and railway links and airport links make it much easier to extract natural resources. And of course, they also serve a military purpose. I mean, you know, when you drive past an airport in the middle of nowhere in Tibet or in Xinjiang, it's not just a sort of white elephant, but it's also... It means that if there's trouble in that particular region, they can fly in the army very quickly. Yeah, the, the railways very much felt like that sort of harbingers of doom traveling in these regions. Because at the time I was in Xinjiang, it went as far as Kashgar. And I understand from your book now it's it's gone to Hotan as well. Yeah, I yeah, that's um I didn't 
go by train to Hotan. I mean, I um, I went by road. I mean, in ACA, when I went to Kashgar, there was still no railway. The railway stopped in Arumchi or Turfan, and you got a bus, or there was like a once a week plane. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the amount of railway expansion is extraordinary. I mean, yeah, building that rail line across the Tibetan plateau. Yes, that was incredible. Yeah, that was when when I traveled to Tibet. It was it was overland as well. Like you you had to go by bus. Yeah, I mean, um, um, all that's changed. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, obviously, I mean, China is such a big country. Yeah, you know, there are still parts, plenty of parts of China which aren't, you know, which still haven't really been or been barely touched by you know the modern world. But um, there are fewer and fewer of them now, just because you know the, the, the transport networks are spreading everywhere and. And I wonder, I suppose, in you know, maybe 20, 30 years' time, it'll all be, it'll all be linked up and um, yeah, the days of bouncing around on a bus will be gone for good forever. Yeah, I mean, everybody always says that, that oh, I was there, it's, you know, before it all changed or that was kind of a golden age, but it really felt like that in, in Xinjiang. I mean, in, it must have been incredible in 88, but even in 2002, the, the railway went as far as Kashgar and you could see them starting to take down mm. parts of the old town, but along the Southern Silk Road, traveling by bus to um, what Yarkand and Hotan and those places, it was really like another planet. Like it really felt like Central Asia. And as you, as you said in the book too, uh, you'd we'd be followed down the street by strange little towns, by mass lo- masses of people who just are so curious about uh, seeing a foreigner in such a place. Well, we just hadn't seen foreign for, foreigners then, yeah, especially you know, in '88. Um, I'm like, even now, you can go to plenty of small towns, uh, you know, in China where you know they won't follow you down the street, but people will be surprised to to see you, and they might say, "Oh, you're the first foreigner I've met in in person." Um, yeah, that that's perfectly possible still in China. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I I mean, I know what you mean when you know people look back and say, "Oh, when I was in Thailand in you know, the 1970s and." Yeah, you know, I had the beach in Phuket to myself, and you know, I lived on ten cents a day. I mean, I, I always say that stuff with a pinch of salt. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't regard the old days as a golden age necessarily. I mean, it was it was it was perhaps a bit more fun to travel just because there were fewer people doing it, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and because we didn't have phones and all that stuff, it wasn't something you, you you'd seen before yeah that's that's one of the major turning points the cell phone and and internet yeah the internet I and mean, that changed changed everything really um but you know yeah you can't drop off the map anymore like that no unless you want to throw you know you throw your mobile phone away yeah when i say like it was a bit of a golden age for travel in that area back then it's i guess it's because it felt so cut off and it felt like such a different planet but it also i mean it really didn't feel that far away from the great game and that kind of time period in Xinjiang. You could really see those places in Kashgar still. Yeah, and, and yeah, we look at there are modern versions of the, the great game going on all over the place. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Russia and the US continue, and China, yeah, fight for influence in Central Asia, South China Sea. I mean, there's all sorts of places where that stuff is still going on. Um, I, mean, I don't know what, what what would be the golden age of travel. I don't know. I mean, um, but I know what you mean, and and, and I agree with it sort of mostly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't, you know, was it a golden age for the Uyghurs? I mean, yeah, but the, the inhabitants, they would probably say no. Yeah, so even even at that time, things were changing quite badly. I rode a, a, the train from Urumqi to Kashgar with a, a Uyghur family in the in a compartment. Mostly, it was, yeah. it was all women and children, and they were hassled uh, in the middle of the night by these, I thought they were railway workers at first, but it was somebody asking to see their papers. Wow. The lights would snap on, you know, three in the morning screaming at these people, and they were all crying, and... I, I lost my temper and hit one of them in the face with a towel and drove them out of the compartments. And the next day, this uh, a weaker man who could speak English came over and said, you know what that was? <laughs> Those people weren't railway workers. That was the PSB, Public Security Bureau, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was just so awful the way these, these people were being treated. It, it, wasn't, it didn't feel as repressed as Tibet. Like along the south side of the Silk Road, people would talk to me still. And I was able to, to find some uh, herdsmen and take camels into the Taklamakan for a week or so with these guys and, and away from the cities, they were very different. That sounds great. Yeah. That was an incredible experience. Yeah. You know, as the two thousands progressed, it got, you know, it got worse and worse. And you know, that, you know, culminated in 2009 when there were riots 
in Urumqi, which you know I went to, uh, I was still based in Beijing then, so we went to cover them, and um, yeah, there was a lot of the <clears throat> repressed rage, and it all sort of snapped out. And you know, so the you know people were getting you know, Han Chinese people were getting you know dragged off buses and you know sort of like beaten half to death and stuff. You know, all that anger came out. But that obviously, you know, if that had happened, you know, maybe in the UK or Canada, that you know that there would have been a sort of compromise and set up an inquiry to, to you know say, yeah, you know, how can we, how can we carry on doing this, but treating the people a bit better but in china you know when you do that when you rebel against you know the government and you attack the han chinese you know the only answer they will ha- you know they will have is repression and you know, more repression and you know from so from 2009 2010 on it, it really got very very bad and, and and it's led to what we're seeing you know today where you know, yeah, that, that part of China really is, you know, I mean, a, a big, big police state where you know, the amount of surveillance is unreal. Um, the amount of controls on, on, on Uyghurs' lives. It, it, it's hard to, you know, comprehend it, I think, unless you've experienced it. And I, I haven't. But um, it's, yeah, and, and it's a very bleak, bleak situation to them now. Well, even at the time you were there writing about it, you, you described in your book people living Uyghurs and Han living very separate lives in a room. Chi. like I, could, I saw that um, in those places, but it wasn't quite the tension, you know. Like in, in the South Silk Road, I think it was in Yarkand. I remember eating at an outdoor market, and there were a few Han there, not very many, but they were very quiet and sitting separately. Um, but you described you know bars, bars, separate bars. You know, the Chinese wouldn't wouldn't go into the Uyghur bars in case they got stabbed and. The Uyghurs weren't welcome in the Chinese bars. It was a completely segregated society, even then. Yeah, I get. I mean, you know, obviously, it's a bit, it's a bit like the American South. I mean, you know, you can drive through Mississippi, and you know, there'll be honky tonks for white people, and there'll be, you know, the blues joints, you know, for for, for black people. Um, it's it's you know still fairly segregated. You know, might be you know, when I was there. You know, certainly in '88. I mean, you know. The Han Chinese kept a very, very low profile. The only people you really saw around were government workers, or they were army or police. And I, I think there's, yeah, the segregation. You know, it's a very real thing. It's like I was saying earlier. It's you know to do with language because Uyghurs obviously speak their own language. There, are, I mean, in the book, I, I you know describe you know meeting you know, this girl who'd been sort of selected because she was very clever a week ago to, to be sent away to boarding school, you know, 2,000 miles away in Shanghai. It, you know, it's like, you know, maybe a, a couple of hundred Uyghurs a year get the chance to sort of mingle in, get the chance to go to a proper university and, you know, progress. But the vast majority, you know, you're, you're living a sort of a second-rate life in your own land, really. Well, and it was interesting too the story of that girl because she had gone to the to the eastern part of the country, become educated um, at good universities, and then came back and she didn't really fit any longer into her own culture. Like there was really nothing for her there. She couldn't find a husband who who earned more than her, I guess it was. And, and culturally, you know, there's no jobs for her. Yeah, I mean, she. I mean, I'm glad to say that she she did find a husband um, and is married with kids. I don't know how she, I haven't heard from her for for, for a few years, but. Um, she did get married. Um, yeah, it depends. I mean, I think she was kind of reluctant to sort of join the Han society. You know, she could have found a job. I'm sure she would have been one of the token sort of Uyghur employees at a, you know, a Chinese oil or natural gas corporation. They would have found her a position. But she just didn't really want to do it um, because you know, I think, you know, she felt, you know, as you say, conflicted about, you know, the opportunities she'd been given and how that had sort of separated her from, you know, her culture and her people. The Uyghurs are sort of left with agriculture, basically. And even, well, even that is, you know, at a state, you know, at a higher level is controlled by the government. But there aren't too many options. Well, so compare the the condition of Xinjiang with, with Tibet. Like, that's a place that felt... It felt repressed in a in a different sense at the time I was there. It was more like it had already been crushed down. Like I couldn't, I found it very difficult to get anyone to talk to me. Um, people sort of scuttled away if you if you wanted to speak to them. It was different. It was different than Xinjiang, where people still felt a bit more open at that time, at least away from Arunchi. 
Yeah, and I think now, though, if you, if you went to Xinjiang, you would find it, it would be like Tibet now. Um, mm. You'd find very few people willing to talk. I don't know if beaten down and crushed is the right word. I mean, you know, I mean, Tibetans are, you know, they're very, they're still intensely proud of their culture um, and they have their religion as well, which is obviously so important to them um, in a way maybe that Islam wasn't quite as important to the Uyghurs, um, although that's probably, that's changed as well as one of the effects of, you know, Chinese migration and, and, and what they're doing in, in Xinjiang is to make is to make Uyghurs go in search of things which they can hang on to and which can be exclusively Uyghur. And, that, and, one, and you know, being a Muslim is one of those. Yeah, I think in Tibet, it was more like a sort of a grim acceptance of their fate, really. They knew that there wasn't anything they could do about it. You can't really go to war with the Chinese army. Um, I don't think anyone can, can they? There have been, you know, as we know, you know, the riots and you know, mini rebellions at various points, you know, over the last sort of 50, 60 years in both Xinjiang and Tibet. You know, all it leads to is more more repression. So there's a sort of acceptance among Tibetans. It'll be interesting, I think, to see. You know, I mean, I, I said I said in the book that you know this would be the last, the current Dalai Lama would be the last undisputed Dalai Lama. And yeah, Beijing have already said that they're going to appoint the next one. So that it'll be interesting to see what effect that has on the Tibetans, just because you know the religion is such a big part of their lives. Didn't he say that he was? He thought it should end with him, or he was considering uh, not being reincarnated. Yeah, but I don't think you can sort of just end it like that, can you? You can't sort of mm. say I'm not going to be reincarnated. It sort of goes against Buddhism, doesn't it? I mean, you know. We are all, if you're a Buddhist, you're, everyone's reincarnated. I find it hard to believe that Tibetans would follow a Beijing-appointed Dalai Lama. Well, they did this with the Panchen Lama, right? Yeah, I mean, don't follow him. I mean, he lives in Beijing. Mm. Um, he actually used to live nowhere I used to live. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, he you know, goes to Tibet occasionally on sort of stage-managed trips. Um, so it'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I mean... Will they, you know, I mean, I would imagine that the, the Dalai Lama will, there will be a reincarnation, but he will be, he will be picked from, you know, the exile community in Nepal or India. You know, it'll be some kid living in Dharamasala or something like that, rather than, you know, someone living inside China. But it'll be, I mean, yeah, for the Chinese, that's exactly what they want, because they would be perfectly happy if, you know, they're, um, you know, if, if the religion had less of a grip on the people. I find that hard to envision. I find that hard to envision ever happening. It's so central to the lives of everyone. I do too. Yeah, I do too. But I mean, that's what Beijing wants. And uh, I mean, you know, it's a massive irony of, you know, CCP, which you know, doesn't believe in religion, they're deciding to get involved in, you know, we're going to appoint, appoint Catholic bishops, we're going to appoint Buddhist leaders, we're going to appoint imams. Um, you know, they don't believe in religion, but they just want to run it. They want to control it. I should say here, by the way, Ryan, just in case I mean, you have any, I don't know if you have any Han Chinese listeners, but um, I have absolutely no problem with the, the Han Chinese. I, I, I like them very much. Uh, I do have a problem with the government and the, the Chinese Communist Party. So, yes, exactly. Yeah, I was going to. I was going to say we should we should also talk about some of the some of the joys of traveling China because I, I feel the same. Like I'm. The, the government is out, is is shocking what's what's happening there but the the people were very warm and generous and it, it wasn't always an easy place to travel through i found like not speaking the language was made things very difficult in some of these fringe reg- regions but the curiosity and the uh, the openness of the people was interesting it always made up for those sorts of the small difficulties of travel as well yeah i, mean, I think the chinese you know despite you know despite their authoritarian rulers who you know go you know and, and the ccp is just another dynasty you know like the Qing and the ming who are equally repressive in their own ways you know there's, you know, there's sort of an anarchic strain to the chinese i like you know they've got a sense of humor and you know they're also i think they're probably yeah you know, they're a bit more i don't know it's dangerous to compare people to uh, people but um you know it's very different from say japan which we were talking about earlier where you get the sense, I always got the sense when I'm whenever I'm in Japan that people are quite closed and not particularly willing to engage with foreigners. 
I never found that to be the case in China. Yeah, Chinese, Chinese people were ordinary Chinese people were interested. I think I think in Japan it's more of a shyness. Like a, they're paralyzed by shyness because uh, I've seen this in you know if you go up to speak to somebody and ask for directions or whatever and they'll say no English. I'll say but I'm speaking to you in Japanese, you know. And, and I'll say it in Japanese. No, no English, and they'll run away because they're just embarrassed to be to be put on the spot. Yeah, it's possibly that. Um, but it's interesting. I think yeah, that's changing too. I mean, I, I, I read a, a story by a couple of days ago by Stephen McConnell, who's the BBC correspondent in Beijing, and yeah, you know, he's been there forever, and he was talking about the sort of differences between you know the two of the two thousand eight Olympics. And you know, the one which is going on now, the Winter Olympics. And you know, just how just how amazingly different it was. I mean, the Chinese people then, you know, it, it was considered perfectly normal to mix, you know, in certain circles with um foreigners. And there was, there was a lot of mixing, a lot, a lot of socializing. There's less of that now, apparently. It's like it's almost as if people say, okay, we're gonna turn our backs. And yeah, how much of that is because of government influence? You know, I don't know. But. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that's because of the, su- the surveillance states? And maybe people are just a bit more wary now. I don't know. I mean, you know, um, I mean, it was always quite a small circle. You know, it tended to be obviously educated Chinese people, you know, with university degrees, some of whom who'd be overseas. But you know, yeah, maybe yeah, people are just. You, I mean, if you lived under that in, in that society, I, I guess you would become a little wary of things. You know, the party controls so much in terms of you know whether you want to get ahead in your job, you want to do okay, you want to get your kid into you know a reasonable school or university, all that stuff. It doesn't do to to annoy the powers to be. I wonder how much of this might change with um, greater material prosperity. Like in in one section of. In one section about Tibet in your book, you wrote that um, not all Han travel to Tibet because it feels like going on a holiday to a foreign country. A small but increasing number visit as part of a gentle spiritual awakening. Tibet may be less devout place than before, but everyday life remains a world apart from the relentless drive for riches, which characterizes day-to-day existence for most people in Han China. Do you think that's going to change as people become better off? No, I mean, I think they'll always, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, like we were saying earlier, if there's a million people who listen to rap music, I mean, it, it's a big number to us, but it's not a big number in China. I mean, I, there'll always be Chinese people who um, who are interested in Buddhism, and just as there, yeah, there are plenty of Chinese Christians, although life is harder for them now. Um, and there's also, you know, plenty of Muslims. But, you know, there will always be people who will follow religion and, and, and be spiritual. So I don't think that will disappear, but... Well, tell me about the these uh, Zhang Piao, the Tibet drifters that you wrote about. F- from what I remember, they they were sort of like uh, almost like backpacker culture today, but a, a Chinese version where they sort of dropped out of of normal culture, ended up in Tibet, opened a bar or something like this. And yeah, I mean, well, that yeah, and th- th- that's quite common. Also, you get that in the southwest and Yunnan province a lot as well. You know, they they turn, they roll up and you know they really like the lifestyle. It's laid back. It's you know it's like Southeast Asia. And so, you know, they settle down and they, you know, they open a bar or a restaurant or a hotel or something if they can. You know, I, I look, there, there are, you know, plenty of young Chinese who are alienated by the sort of the work culture, which is, you know, very rigorous in terms of hours and all that stuff. You, you do sort of recognise that, you know, that just because you've got a, a nice shiny car, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy necessarily. But I think, you know, there are still so many Chinese people who are poor by any standards that it's going to be it's going to be a few decades yet before there's sort of a sort of you know any sort of you know rejection of that materialism. Yeah, that that was what I was really curious about reading about a lot of these regions because we see this something similar in the West at this point this dissatisfaction with kind of rampant consumerism um, and it's happening with a decline in religiosity. So people are embracing you know. They're, they're rejecting these traditional sources of meaning or we don't have them anymore, but they're instead stirring to substitutes. Like for a while it was new age spirituality and now it's quasi religious movements like this woke ideology or apocalyptic environmentalism or these sorts of things. And this dogma centered kind of stuff, you know, that's sort of something similar with earlier millenarianism. Yeah. I wonder if something like that will eventually happen in China as, as the old ideology stales, you know, it's possible, but um, 
yeah, I think it'll be a while. And, and, and yeah, I mean, it's not just in China, you know, across Asia, you know, you look at India with, you know, huge population, look at Southeast Asia, you know, you know, if you say to sort of your average Thai person or whatever, you know, don't drive your car because it's bad for the environment. They sort of look at you like, well, that's a bit mad. I mean, for them, you know, it's a symbol that you've arrived. You, these are people who might be one or two generations off, you know, standing in a paddy field, plucking rice seven, eight, seven, eight hours a day. And it's the same in China. It's going to take, I think, you know, quite a few more generations before we reach the sort of level, you know, where we're, we're at in the sort of post-capitalist, post-capitalist confusion, really, where, you know, people don't know, you know, they, they, they don't like what they're seeing in terms of materialism, but, you know, they don't quite know how to get out of it. I suppose we're like more likely to see a resurgence of nationalism before before any of this would ever come to pass. Like the they're pretty nationalist already. Give them a level of control, you know, on, on what you can read. It is still, you know, it's much harder to get differing viewpoints, isn't it, in, in a country like China than it is, you know, in a place like India, where at least you can access the internet and all the rest of it. It'll be interesting. I mean, you know, I I, I don't see any radical changes in China in my lifetime. I mean, um, yeah, things move, you know, it'll, it'll be years, decades down the line, I think. One thing that strikes me about the, like you, t- you said about the, um, how hard it is to get outside information, but at the same time, how it's interesting, how intensively curious Chinese people are to read the Western classics and study our own literature at a, at a point where we're rejecting it. Like how many Westerners know that much about China or have read the Chinese classics? Exactly. Yeah. Um, the classics, you know, there because they're, you know, they've been approved by the, um, the CCP. I mean, they're not going to teach you, you know, they're not going to give school kids catch 22 to read or, um, you know, the catcher in the rye or whatever. I mean, um, it's much easier to give them great expectations because, um, you know, you could do a Marxist reading of great expectations, couldn't you, or Dickens saying, you know, that look at him in, his work, in the workhouse or whatever and the evils of capitalism. But You've reminded me of um, traveling around sort of the middle bits of China in Shanghai and they I'd go into a bookstore looking for something through. I was, I was terrified of running out of books. So I was carrying an enormous amount with me, but I found those, um, those, those Western classics, a lot of Dickens, there'd, there'd be a, a treasure Island. Yeah. And uh, what Hemingway, farewell to arms I found there. But the funniest, right, the strangest you. thing I found a copy of tropic of cancer in, in Qinghai. That's unusual. Can you imagine like if, if, if Henry Miller had started to spread there, that's intellectual terrorism or something. Yeah, and I think that's, I don't know how, I mean, personally, I don't know what happens to personally around that bookshop. They found out that they were selling Tropical Cancer. But, um, I bought that, uh, I bought that, reread it three times on that trip, I think. Look, people, I mean, you know, you, people have VPNs, even though they're hard to use. And yeah, you, people can still see stuff. CCB have always been reasonably clever about what they censor or what they don't. I mean, um, like they never used to bother about you know artists, you know painters or sculptors because they you know they they'd say you know that was less of a concern than someone who makes a film because more people are going to watch a film than um, go to an art gallery. We I don't think we can speculate on on on, on what it's going to be, but I, you can't look at what China is now and be hugely optimistic. To come back to border regions for a second, there was one thing I wanted to ask you. I was struck by the difference between uh, Yunnan, the Golden Triangle region, the Northeast, and uh, places like Xinjiang and and Tibet. Like, uh, I haven't, I've been to Kunming, but I haven't traveled in south of China at all, apart from that. You know how how the Uyghurs and Tibetans have clashed with the Han sometimes violently as they tried to resist the imposition of this alien culture. But but further to the east, in the in the jungle border regions of Yunnan, uh, you found tribal peoples who took a very different approach. So why do you think? the Dai people have been able to adapt to Chinese rule and to find ways to keep their culture private and alive between that yoke while the Uyghurs and Tibetans have not? Well, because I mean, they were um, regarded straight away as less confrontational. And you know, if, if you're less confrontational, you get more space. I think you know, the, big, the big difference you know, is that Xinjiang, you know, Uyghurs will tell you that they would like to be their own country, would like to be independent, you know, whether it's call it East Turkestan or whatever. And obviously, Tibet was once <clears throat> an independent, independent state. There's no sort of movement amongst, you know, Dai or the other ethnic minorities 
in Yunnan to, you know, to create their own country. They don't want to carve out their own space. Then because they drift between different countries and can be found in so many different countries, they have a sort of different attitude to you know, the concept of country that we have. Yeah, they, they don't really care too much about borders. They're, yeah, they're more interested in ethnicity than in passport. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're a Dai person in Thailand or a Dai person in China or a Dai person in Burma, you're still a Dai person. And that's what's important to them. So I think, you know, the Chinese look at, <clears throat> look at that and, and, and say, okay, these, these people are no risk to us. You know, they, they don't want to challenge us. They don't, they're not saying we want to be an independent state uh, with our own government or our, you know, they don't have big religious leaders like the Dalai Lama. It's, I could see that that would make sense in Tibet, like the, the people have a larger loyalty to the Dalai Lama or to Buddhism and that I could see that being a threat. But I'm surprised that given the Uyghurs sort of, and the cultural influence of Central Asia and how all those cultures sort of blended together, yes, they're different groups, but but they've always sort of moved and blended in that region and how the Dai people existing in this amorphous space between multiple countries, how that's not seen as a threat. The border now down there is tighter than it used to be everywhere is tightened up in China. You can still, I mean, it's still much, much easier to move across those borders than it is any other border in China, but um, there's, there's, a, there's a heavier police presence now. So, I mean, so things are maybe changing. Um, you know, I haven't been in Yunnan since 2016. And, you know, I, when I was down on the border, I did notice that, you know, that it, it was more strict. Um, you could still get across for a day or two if you wanted to go into Burma or without going through passport control if you knew the way. But, so things are changing. But I mean, you know, there's no threat. There's no point in antagonizing. You know, I think the Chinese, even if they would never say this, the Chinese government probably acknowledges that, you know, they could have done things privately, could have probably done things differently in Xinjiang and Tibet. I think that there's no appetite to antagonize yet another group of you know, yeah another ethnic minority so yeah it's just much looser for that reason yeah and i guess at this point too it would be very difficult to walk back from from the situation in xinjiang like yeah of course they can't back down because you know that that would be completely against the ccp's dna just have to look at hong kong to see that they don't back down because that's a sign of weakness yeah they're they're 55 official official minorities in in China and they're not all treated the same you know there's, it's, it's all very it's, it's different you know but the ones which are regarded as you said earlier you know it's uncooked and ones who are cooked it's interesting though that the um, the die people you described a sort of a Janus like way that they, they they sort of put on the um ethnic minority act for for Han tourists but then they keep the deeper parts of their culture very personal and enclosed Whereas in the Northeast, you, you describe the Chinese of Korean descent living very openly with, in unsegregated cities, you know, with Korean restaurants and Korean language schools and and print media. I was quite surprised by that. Well, I mean, Koreans. I mean, again, you know, they're they're probably the ultimate example of you know, you know, a friendly minority. You know, but the Koreans in China virtually all fought to the CCP side in, in the Chinese Civil War, and then you know, the, the CCP haven't forgotten that they um. They were given privileges because of that, which other minorities don't get. And again, you know, they're not seen in any way as a threat. I mean, the only thing there is, you know, Chinese Koreans tend to be, you know, there's a very strong sort of tradition of Christianity that they don't particularly like. But, you know, um, you know, they can put up with that. You know, again, the Koreans in China aren't about to form their own, agitate for their own state. So how come you didn't include um, Inner Mongolia in the book? Right, yeah, well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, I never wanted this to be a sort of David Imer travels round the entire border of all 13,000, whatever miles or, or whatever it is, of China doing a chapter on yeah, every single minority. Um, I decided I was going to go for the most contentious border regions, um, so that was you know, Xinjiang and Tibet, and also for the ones which I found personally most interesting and which I felt would be interesting to a reader. Yeah, Mongolia got left out. And you know, in some ways, I regretted that. Um, 
because there is a lot of interesting stuff going on in in Mongolia and in you know in Mongolia as well. But it, it was just I couldn't do everything, and I didn't I didn't want to be to be the book to be sort of like and here's a chapter on Mongolians and here's a chapter on the die and here's a chapter on you know whoever. It was yeah I, I wanted it to be a bit more focused than that. Yeah, I think it worked out very well. Like you were able to plunge deeply into each of these places. I heard, uh, I mean, I haven't read it. There's a book, I believe, which came out last year in which a woman, a Russian woman, I think she is, goes all around Russia's borders. Yeah, she's, I think she's um, Norwegian or Finnish. Norwegian, I think. Oh, that's it. Yeah, I mean, she, oh, yeah, she's Scandinavian. House. I mean, she also wrote a book, I believe, on Central Asia. Yes, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Was it good? I don't know, but I mean. It's a brick of a book, and I, I was a bit disappointed, to be honest. It, it right. seemed like it, it needed a, a pretty thorough edit. Like a lot of the stories, because so much was crammed into it, it felt like. Some of them were a bit superficial. The the writing was was good, I thought. But I mean, I, I'd be quite interested to see how she did, you know, going all around Russia's borders. I picked that one up as well. I haven't read it yet. But uh, yeah, there's so much to read, as you know. I mean, we're always stacked up with you know twenty, thirty books. The other thing I really liked about your book as well was um, the geographical diversity of these regions. So you've got the desert regions in the far west, which is my kind of personal landscape that I like the best, and that high plateau of Tibet, that bleak high altitude desert almost. And then you've got jungle in the north or southeast and the sort of more Siberian wooded landscapes up north. Yeah, that was another reason to focus on those regions was that yeah, they were all they were all completely different geographically. I mean I yeah, I felt that that really that worked for me because you know you, I needed to differentiate the different minorities because otherwise it would have sort of all blurred into one. That's why I'd, I'd be interested to read this book about the Russian borders because, yeah, I wonder how she did that. Because, you know, if you're going around, say, from the Russian Far East all the way around to, you know, you have to go quite a long way before you get a sort of different climate. So, geographically, it's all going to be quite similar. It, it, it was great to be able to sort of do a sort of Siberian, Siberian sort of winterish thing and also to do South, Southeast Asian sort of tropical rainforest. And then, like you said, the desert in in in, in Xinjiang, and and then Tibet, which is just sort of you know otherworldly sort of climate and geography. When you're up up above you know five thousand meters, it's like it's like nowhere else. I and mean, I guess it's like what other planets look like. Or, yeah, yeah. The desert always feels like that. I really liked reading about your your trip to the western part of Tibet too. Like at the time that I was there, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't possible to go there. I, I maybe I couldn't afford to to hire somebody to. We we could still travel fairly fairly freely by by bus as far as Shigatse and Gansu, and and that was about it. Like it was easy enough to ditch out in Lhasa and change hotels and you know evade the mandatory tours at the time. But getting much farther than that, it wasn't easy. It it, it, it was such luck of a draw. You know, I mean, you know, there, there were years. I, mean, I knew people who I was jealous of who in the early nineties when it was a lot less restrictive. Who were yeah, they used to be able to hitch into to that. From 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 uh, Qinghai or and these places and, and yeah they had far more you know freedom to move around and yeah of course you know, the sort of most legendary for me you know journey which would be running down from Kashgar down to Lhasa Lhasa you know if, if you, you know that that road I mean I I I, I met one or two people who'd done that and that was years and years ago I I, I wanted to, I wanted to do that you know, for the book but it, it just wasn't possible I mean. I was, it would have been possible if I'd been willing to spend, yeah, you know, a really ridiculous amount of money. I mean, I mean, talking, yeah, not talking like a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, more like $10,000 um, to, to get someone who could do all the permits and, you know, go down in a Jeep. But yeah, I would have loved, I would love to do that, that journey. I was eyeing that at the time as well, that, that, that trip straight across the West to the deserts, but I mean, it wasn't. Without speaking any of the language as well, I thought that's oh, impossible at that time. But you did get to um, the southern part of the Silk Road and straight across back into the east, which I was interested in as well. Like I, I ended up going from Hotan across the the cross desert highway was fairly recent then, I think, and back to Urumqi via that way. But to, towards the east and Lopnor and those regions looked really interesting. In, in in that in the time we're talking about, which is yeah you know, you know, ten years ago, I guess now. You know, it was looser, and but also, you know, r- rules and regulations shifted. I mean, it would be like you could try and go in one year, and they'd say no. But then the next year, you could go. 
so you know it was just luck if you happened to be there at a time when you could go I, I i'd be interested to see what that's like now in china i, I imagine they're having less you know, fewer periods when the more remote places are open but i could be wrong so you were officially there as a foreign correspondent yeah well i mean i had a yeah i had a journalist visa and so did that did that hamper your travels at all well i didn't a bet but i mean i have I have a couple of passports, so yeah, I, I didn't use a passport which had a journalist visa in it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to go to Tibet and do that journey on a journalist visa. No, not at all. No, no, like you, they don't. They don't want any. You know, the problem with having a journalist visa in China is, yeah, every time as you know, every time you check into a hotel or a guest house, they look at your passport. And what they tend to do is they see you have a journalist, they immediately get on the phone to the local you know, PSB and police and say, we've got a journalist staying here. So straight off, I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone knows what you're doing in town. And of course, you know, quite often the police will pop around and, and you know, often in quite a friendly way, they invite you for a cup of tea and say, you know, there's nothing here of any interest to you, you should move, you should leave. Not, not, not being heavy about it, not being like, you know, trying to beat you up or, you know, even intimidate you really just to sort of letting you know that if you do stay you know you're going to be followed to the point where no one's going to speak to you anyway so i didn't i didn't see any well i mean obviously i was just a backpacker at the time traveling through but uh, i did find it sometimes hard to find a hotel like they wouldn't accept foreigners or they they either didn't have, didn't have papers to accept foreigners or just didn't want to oh yeah that's that as well yeah oh i mean there are a lot of hotels which aren't you know aren't licensed officially to take foreigners um so yeah that, that wasn't necessarily because they didn't like the look of you ryan it's it's it, it, you know yeah like you say i mean yeah people yeah but especially if they're not used to contact with with westerners they can be you know a bit shy they kind of think oh look you're gonna be hassled you're gonna you know you could, you're not gonna speak mandarin you're gonna give us a hard time about the bed or something mm. i don't know you can't get you know cnn on your t- you know all this stuff they, they're just worried and so it's, they think, oh, it'll be easier just to say, no, you can't stay here. I think they're worried about not having the right type of underwear as well. That could have been yeah. the thing. I stayed in a place in Xining, uh, uh, I think, on the way to Tibet. And it was a Chinese hotel. Like they, we talked them into letting us stay. I was with these two Swedes. And everybody on our floor, all the guys would leave their doors. It's all men, I guess, traders or something. Yeah. All their doors were open and everybody was lounging around in red bikini underwear. I didn't see a single non-red bikini underwear. Right. Well, that's that's an interesting. Um, maybe was it around the time of Chinese New Year? You're meant to wear red. No, no, I don't. You're think meant so. to wear red. It's the middle of the summer. It definitely doors being left open is totally that's very Chinese. Yeah, it was really it was a great place. Everybody was lounging up and down the hall and wandering in and out. You know, they're very friendly. But then we we used to go up on the roof um, where they dried the laundry and we take a couple beers up there at night because there was really nothing to do in this town. We sit there and you know drink beer on, under the stars, and I could see some other hotels from around here, from from this viewpoint. And I saw the same thing in some of the other windows: red underwear everywhere. Interesting. I couldn't answer that. <laughs> it's an anthropological conundrum. So, what do you think the the future is now? Travel in China now at this point. I think yeah, there are fewer people going anyway because of the situation. I think yeah, people will still travel to you know the east, you know, to places like Beijing, to Shanghai, or go to Xi'an the terracotta warriors um yunnan i mean i think some people will still go to yunnan um but yeah i mean traveling in in in, in xinjiang and tibet and the, the contentious areas is going to be you know it's going to be a problem i mean it's actually kind of impossible to get to tibet now unless you know you're in a sort of a group where you're all from the same country and you are paid just you know such ridiculous amounts of money now it really shuts out a lot of people from traveling a bit like the north korea model i guess with tightly 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 vetted tightly organized groups and at a very large amount of money yeah certainly certainly for places like tibet it'll be like that um you know but i mean people will still fly in i imagine to um once once china opens its borders again but people will still go to you know, the popular places, you know, the places they always went to. But I mean, it'll mean, you know, so, so it'll be in a way, if you, in, you know, to maybe in 10 years' time, it'll be an adventure again to go to um, the places which are hardest to reach because so few people will be doing it. 
That's a fascinating place. So what's what's next for you at this point? Can you give us a hint on what you're working on now? Well, I'm, I'm trying to working on a couple of things which um, <laughs> I don't seem to be moving forward very quickly. So I'm, I'm actually sort of wondering if I, I need to do something a bit different. I mean, I think it's it's hard now with, with travel writing. It's not a particularly fashionable genre at the moment. Um, what are white, middle-aged, middle-class people you know, doing, going off to foreign countries and writing about them? travel books? You want to sell a travel book now? You got you kind of got to bend over backwards to make it seem like it's not a travel book. Call it memoir or you know, history or you know whatever. But so I, I'm kind of thinking about what approach I need to take. Um, I definitely you know want to carry on writing about other countries and other regions. Um, how to do it is at the moment is a big question. Yeah, are, are your interests still mainly in Asia? Yeah, you know, I've never been like you know, I'll, I'll fly to you know Mozambique for three months and you know then come back and write a book about it. That I think you know that that is a valid criticism of, of, of some travel writing. Um, you know, I've always written about places that I lived in. You know, I've spent you know seventeen years in Asia now in East and Southeast Asia, so I do know it well. I don't know. So, and yeah, frankly, I, I've got no burning desire to write a book about Africa. I mean, I've never really been. So maybe if I went there, I would love it and want to write a book. But yeah, so I'll, I, I kind of will stick to what I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's given a, a great deal of depth to your, to your writing as well. The, the book on Burma was fantastic too. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. It's kind of you to say. That's that's a whole uh, separate conversation, I guess. At at some point, I'd love to yeah. talk about that with you as well. I've, <laughs> I was there. I spent a month there in two thousand two. On, on that same extended trip, but at the time it was very difficult to get to anywhere that wasn't, you know, Rangoon um, to Mandalay that that corridor and up as far as Sipo in the Shan State. But uh, all right, you went to Sipo. That's cool. That was a, that was a really cool place. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, now forget it. I mean, I mean, with the coup, um, yeah, Burma, yeah, it kind of regressed back to. Um, to what it was at you know, that time you went, you know, the previous junta, which was running a country. I mean, um, it, it's funny how in Burma, you know, the history is so cyclical. Maybe it's a Buddhist thing. Um, I mean, actually, I think that's a quote at the beginning of that Burma book, where, you know, modern Burma is just old Burma reincarnated. And yeah, yeah. I'm beginning to think that's the case. I mean, yeah, because um, it, it's, it's desperately sad what, what, what happened last year. I mean, the first anniversary of the coup, I guess, is on Tuesday, first of February. But I'm I'm also optimistic that it isn't going to be like like it was when you were there, where you were sort of experiencing you know, the end of what was going to be 50 years of military rule. I think you know they they've really screwed up, and um, yeah, I think they know they've lost actually. And uh, so I, I'm optimistic that they'll be that the jumps won't last as long. Hopefully not. Yeah, it was such a such an enjoyable country to travel. I really liked the people there. And yes, it was, it was really interesting in your book, you know, to read about all these different regions that were closed at that time. That little panhandle bit down in the south and and some of the um some of the border regions. It's it's amazing the diversity of the country as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely something I'm attracted to. I like, you know, I like countries where there's a good mix of people. I think it's more interesting to write about. Yeah, that's, I find, yeah, I'm drawn to those places too, that sort of these transitional border regions where different cultures bump up against each other and kind of blend together and mix. Those, those are the most fascinating regions. Yeah, you know, that, that, that stuff is fascinating. And, um, and again, you know, you, the, the most remote parts of Burma, you know, they look amazing. I mean, ge- geographically, they're, they're, they're really, um, you got you're up in the far north. I mean, yeah, you're, 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 you basically are in the foothills of the Himalayas. And, um, it's and then you go down to the deep south, and it, it, it's like you know your sort of tropical island, Southeast Asian paradise, except with no hotels or people or tourists. So yeah, I mean, I want to look. You carry on looking for yeah that mix of diversity amongst peoples and diversity amongst you know geographically. Yeah, it's it's worked out very well. These these books, I highly recommend both of them, and I'll put some links to both in the in the notes for this podcast. Well, thanks thanks very much for taking the time to to uh, talk with me and uh, i know it's been a very busy week for you so no i appreciate it ryan and i'm glad you we, you hung in there <laughs> um but no it's been good to talk to you and um you know you're a fellow writer travel writer and yeah i mean you have you, you've experienced a lot of what 
we've all experienced yourself and written about it. So it's good to talk to someone who knows who knows what it's about. Well, hopefully we'll cross paths in a in a random bar and some board you're reading at some point. I hope so. I mean, I mean, uh, and if I'm ever in Berlin, I'll definitely let you know. Yeah, yeah, look me up for sure. Yeah, that's your permanent base now. Not for now, anyway. It's been five years, I think. So probably a couple more. That's quite a long time. Yeah, before it was six. I was six years in Malta before that, and then right. That's why you were, moved from Malta. That's to why here. you were writing the book, but you pitching the book about Malta, weren't you? Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's been that's slow going for the same reasons that you've said. You know, nobody's nobody's interested in white middle aged guy. I guess I'm hit. I've hit that point pretty near now, and uh, and just it's such a kind of a marginal place, Malta. I've been to Malta. I went there once to work as a journalist years and years ago for a few days. I quite liked it. I thought it was yeah, it's a really interesting place. Totally got the blend of you know different sort of different. Yeah, you got you got the Middle East, you got Europe, Southern Europe. You got a lot going on there. It's definitely not what I expected when, when I expected some sort of a Lawrence Sterl vision of, you know, a Greek island or something, but it's very much um, connected to no, North Africa all, yeah. and Sicily. It's, it's completely not what I expected. And yeah, really endless layers of, of interest there. So that was, it was a good choice, but all right. On that note. Lovely to speak to you, Ryan. Thank you very much. Yeah, you too. Uh, good luck with your next one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on books about place at ryanvernock.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.